We are in session number six of our series of studies on the seven churches, and we are looking at this evening at the Church of Philadelphia, and the passage of Scripture we are looking at is in chapter three of the book of Revelation, verses seven onwards. Let me, let me read it first to you. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door, and no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has a year, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Church of Philadelphia, if you notice, is just one of the two churches which is not rebuked by Jesus. Out of the seven churches, only two are encouraged by Jesus with no rebukes. The first one was Smyrna, and this evening is the second one, the Church at Philadelphia. A couple of some uh, background information about the city of Philadelphia, first of all. Number one. The city was located about, twin, about 40 miles southeast of Sardis and about 150 miles due east of Ephesus. So if you notice, we are saying this is the postal route. It started from Ephesus, you know, 150 miles away. The last stop was Sardis, which was 40 miles away. Secondly, this Philadelphia, this city, was established by the Pergamum king, Eumenes II, in 189 BC, making it the youngest of the seven cities mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, why was this called uh, Philadelphia? King Eumenes, who was the Pergamum king, named it in honor of his brother Attalus II, who was called Philadelphus. Okay? Now, why was he called Philadelphus? It is because this younger brother of his resisted pressure from Rome to turn against his older sibling. As a result, he was given this nickname of Philadelphia, of brotherly love. In other words, these two brothers were so close together. So even if the Romans tried to take you know, this younger guy, poisoning his mind maybe to you know, go against you know, his elder brother, the younger guy, so nothing doing. I'm not going to do this. And looking at the brotherly love that he had, this king named this city as Philadelphia. Now, this city was intended to be a center of Greek culture and language. Okay? 
you know it was supposed to be you know a city which would promote this culture all around this region why was it able to do so or what why was the what are the reason the city was selected for that purpose number 3 this was city was located between two mountains in a narrow pass and it lay along the important trade routes between sardis and smyrna okay so in you know, this particular city was situated on a major roman road that led from troas in the west through to pergamum thyatira sardis uh, sardis and then to philadelphia in the east this was the trade route in you know, a important strategic location now being a trade route the city was also selected to be a place in which the greek culture would be shown to the people around and so that you know the greek lifestyle and culture would be practiced you know by all the traders who will come and go and they will take that to the other cities as well so in other words philadelphia was established to be what is it called a missionary city for greek culture <clears throat> fourthly this city unfortunately was situated in a zone of considerable seismic activity earthquakes were very very frequent and people constantly lived in fear of collapsing buildings and walls and as a result as soon as the slightest tremors were felt they would often flee from the city and many chose to live in huts outside the city walls or in the open country to avoid being trapped or crushed in the event of an earthquake and this is important for us to understand when jesus speaks about you know you know the benefits or the rewards of you know those individuals in the church in this place who would be overcomers where the lord says that they will be as pillars in his kingdom in other words they don't have to be worried of earthquake anymore because god is going to give them that stability fifthly it was called as little athens it was called as little athens and as i mentioned earlier it was founded with the deliberate intention that it would be a missionary city for promoting greek culture and greek language you know and it did it so well that by ad 19 the lydians had forgotten their own lydian language and were all but greeks okay in other words they had done such a good job you know that the local people adopted the greek culture adopted the greek language you know and the lord again uses this you know to speak about the open door you know open door that would be you know, a great missionary opportunity for people to carry the message of jesus to people all around sixthly unfortunately it was also famous for its wine you know and the city's coins feature the image of bacchus the the wine god and the god of revelry and debauchery number 7 the muslims eventually conquered the city around uh, ad 1000 and the modern town of al asahir is now located on the site of ancient ruins what about the history of the church over here it was probably founded on paul's third missionary journey So remember the third missionary journey was quite an important journey which he undertook to visit all these new areas and to establish churches in these places. 
Interestingly, Philadelphia was the last of the seven cities of Revelation to lose its Christian testimony. You know, so a strong group, they held on, they held on as the Lord told them, hold on, hold on, hold fast. And they held on to it, to the beliefs you know, very strongly. And it was the last of these seven cities you know, to lose its Christian testimony. Now, how does Jesus reveal himself to this church? In verse 7, this is what we read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Here you find this fourfold description. Let's look at that one by one. Number one, the Lord addresses himself as the Holy One, the Holy One. This is a distinctive attribute of God. He's set apart. He's perfect. He is pure. And this was the fullest revelation of Christ that was given to any of the churches. And it was given to the church that was most faithful to him. Now, the Lord reminds them that he is the Holy One in contrast to the wickedness of the pagan city in which, you know, the church at Philadelphia existed. He is the Holy One. Then it says he is the true one. He is the true one. Okay. He cannot lie. He keeps his word. He is fully trustworthy at all times and in every way. The Lord is the one who is true. He keeps his word. That's an encouragement that is given to the church here in Philadelphia when he speaks words of encouragement to them to say, what I'm saying to you is the truth. This is what is going to happen to you. Thirdly, he has the key of David. He has the key of David. Keys and locks and doors are a sign of power and official authority. Now, Jesus does not hold the key to Philadelphia, but to the key for the house of David. What does that mean over that? Remember, God told David that he would establish his kingdom and his son would reign on the throne forever. That is the word that God gave to David. You know? I will make sure that this lineage will continue on. Okay? Now, Jesus is that son who takes that seat, that eternal throne. So when the Lord says he has the key of David, he is speaking about he who is the king. He who is the king on that eternal throne. The throne that God promised to King David, the physical throne. Jesus saying, now I have taken that rightful, spiritual, eternal throne. So Jesus is the greatest son of David who has inherited his father's kingdom and will rule over it forever, forever. So the Lord is saying over here, hey, look here, you are going through some intense trouble over here. Things are not easy for you. But remember, I have the keys. You know? I'm the one who is in charge. I'm the one who is seated on the throne. And that's a good imagery for us to look at. When we go through situations in life, to recognize he is the holy one. He is the true one. And he is the one who has the key. He is the one who is in charge. And then he also says in the next one, the fourth aspect, he is the one who opens and shuts the doors. He opens it, he shuts it as well. He is sovereign over all. He is powerful. He is powerful. Okay. Now, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 tells us, 
Men make plans, but the outcome is entirely in God's hands. So the verse tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole dispersing thereof is of the Lord. That's what the understanding is. When the Lord says, no matter whatever is happening, no matter whatever man's plans may be, you know, it is the Lord who opens the doors. It is the Lord who also shuts the doors as well. Now, there are three interpretations for this, you know, for this uh, phrase of open doors and shut doors. First understanding is an opportunity for evangelism. You know, when the Lord says, I've given you an open door for evangelism, it's a strategic city, Philadelphia, trade route. And I'm saying, make use of this opportunity before the door is going to be shut, an open door for evangelism. It could also be as Christ, who is the door of salvation. There's the open door. Christ has made the plan for us. I am the door. Now, the Lord is the one who has made that salvation possible. As the shepherd would lie at the gate you know, to protect and guard the sheep, the Lord is saying that I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the door for salvation. Anyone who comes to the Father comes through me. That door is open and we need to respond to that. But it could also respond, it could also mean of Jesus referring to the blessings that he is able to give abundantly to his children. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, it's, he says, Test me now and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be room enough to store it. The Lord is saying over here, look here, you know, I'm the one who's given the open door for evangelism, go ahead. I'm the one who is the door for salvation, preach about me. And the Lord is also saying, you know, test me now to see if this is true. If the open door is there, I'm going to be there with you and meet all your needs. So primarily or principally, Jesus is assuring us that he will faithfully be with us in our service for him. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, isn't it? Go therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. And then he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the assurance that God gives to us. And that's the description of himself, you know, a very, very complete understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our lives. He addresses, you know, he introduces himself like that to the church at Philadelphia. Fifthly, what is the Lord's commendation to the church at Philadelphia? First of all, in verse 8, he says, I know your works. I know your works. In other words, he says, I know you intimately. When he speaks about I know your works, he's not speaking just about the external works. He's speaking also about your intentions for your works. I know your works intimately. I know you through and through why you're doing what you're doing, you know. And if we have uh, uh, clear intentions, that is indeed an assurance to us. But if on the other hand, if we have wrong intentions, this would not be a word of commendation. But it's a word of commendation. So when the Lord says, I know your works, what he's saying is, I know that your intentions are good. What you're doing for me is good. I know your works. Then he says, I know that you have but little part. I know that you have but little part. Now, this is not uh, an insult or a rebuke. 
It's just an acknowledgement that they had very little influence on their culture. They were small in size, maybe, or maybe they were persecuted by the Jews who were stronger than them, because they read about the synagogue of Satan. In a, yet in the face of this opposition, they did not deny their faith in Christ. The church had little far, okay? They suffered. Jesus saved them, you know. So what the Lord is saying over here is, you know, no matter what opposition you go through, you may feel that I don't have much power. I'm going to you know, give in. The Lord says, don't worry. I am holding on to you. I know you intimately. I know you have very little power, but you know, I'm holding on to you. So you do not give up. Go ahead. You, know, you can tell the world, you know, do whatever you want to. You, know, you, you can't take away what the Lord has given to you. That's why in John chapter 10, the Lord says, I, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. You may feel that you have very little power, but the focus is not on the little power that you have. The focus is on the power of God. So what if, if this church had little power? Their God has all the power. That's the letter, that's the word of encouragement to them. You have had that little power, but it is like that little faith in a big God, which is what I appreciate. That's what the Lord is saying. When Jesus is all we have, we realize that Jesus is all we need. Because when we are weak, then are we strong. Because when we are conscious of our complete inability to serve Christ in our own strength, then we cast ourselves on God's strength and resources. Isn't this true? If a person thinks that he has a lot of power, he's actually weak. But if a person says, look, I don't have any strength, Lord, I'm depending on you, not I, but Christ, Lord, then that is where the power of God is manifested. So the attitude of these individuals was not to say, oh, we have done great. Nah. The Lord looks at their hearts and says, hey, you have humility in your lives. You, know? you acknowledge it is not by yours and our strength that you are able to withstand the enemy. It is your dependence on me. This is why in the third one, he says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my word. It's an interesting word, the Greek word that is used there for kept my word. The Greek word is stereo, which is basically means to keep or to observe, okay? To keep or to observe. We notice in, in uh, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, where he says, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It's the same word, terio, to keep, okay? Now, this word has two meanings. First of all, it means to guard and to protect, okay? And that is the meaning that is used here in, in uh, this verse. You, know? you have kept, you have guarded, you have watched over it, you have preserved this, okay? This was the same word that was used in a, uh, to describe those who are assigned to guard Christ's tomb. 
you have kept that safe. That is the job of the gods to keep the tomb safe. So try and think of this in you know, the picture of you know, keeping the faith that has been entrusted to us safe so that it is not watered down, so that it is not changed. You know? And that's the first meaning when it says, you have kept my word. Okay? When there has been false teachers around, you have guarded the gospel. Second meaning is to fulfill or to obey, to keep God's commandments. That's the second understanding. So we have the words of Christ in, a, in, a, in the scriptures and we are called upon today to guard this treasure from corruption, defending it against the attacks of the enemy. That's what it means when he says observe all things. But we are also given the task of obeying it in all points. And this is what the church at Philadelphia was commended for. And this evening we must ask ourselves, if the Lord had to write a church, write a letter about our faith, you know, what would he write? Would he say that we have allowed the world's philosophy to creep into our faith and we have corrupted the faith? Or would he say that here is an individual, here is a generation which has preserved the gospel uncorrupted, you know, to make sure that the gospel, which is Christ, died on the cross for our sins and rose again to grant us victory over sin and death. We have made sure that that the true gospel is preserved and not changed, especially in this world that we live in, where we have so many false gospels around us. But also along with that, would the Lord be able to say, not only doctrinally we are pure and preserve the original, but we are also applied that into our lives so that our lives have become different. And this is what the church in Philadelphia was commended for. Then we find his promise that is given to this church. He says, I've set before you an open door and I will keep you from the hour of temptation. I've set before you an open door, an open door. Now, you've spoken about this open door, you know, speaking about you know, an open door for evangelism, speaking about Jesus himself, who is the door of the sheep, okay? So the door symbolizes the need for a decision, a need for a decision. So the Lord is saying, okay, you know, this is the promise that I'm giving to you. I set you an open door for evangelism and as you faithfully go and reach out, I will work in the hearts of people so that they would be able to respond, decision that they would be able to make. And when the Lord says, when God opens a door and no man can shut it, remember Jesus in the Great Commission said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, so go. Okay, That's the link between the two. We go not in our authority. We go because God has opened the door. We go not in our power, but we go in the power that God has given to us. And that's the promise that the Lord gives to this church. Secondly, he says, he has promised to make those of the synagogue of Satan to worship before their feet. What is the synagogue of Satan? These are the Judaizers that plagued the church you know, in the first century. They required that the believers should obey the Mosaic law. Okay? 
And Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, you know, to counter this heresy that a person has to keep the law in order to be a true believer, you know. That was this, you know, the synagogue of Satan, as the Lord calls them. And he says, they are liars. They are liars, he says, okay. Because they were Jews in the flesh, but not really genuine Jews in the spirit, okay. So God called them as liars, okay. Now, remember, Christ does not mince any, you know, words. He doesn't beat around the bush, you know. He's saying, this is the truth. If a person says you need to do Jesus plus something, he says, hey, you know, that's not the truth. That's the lie. You know? And then he says, what will happen to them? He will make sure that these individuals who think that they have to do Christ, respond to Christ plus something else, one day, you know, they would have to acknowledge that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself so that no one can boast. Think of the Philippian jailer, okay, when you know, Paul and Silas you know, found that they were freed from their chains, okay, this jailer was in charge of them, you know, you know, in that sense of the term, the Roman people who had opposed them. Now, they themselves, the jailer themselves asked, what must I do now? How can I have the same joy that you had in prison? How can I have the same assurance that the God whom you are worshipping is the one true God, okay? Now, Barnes in his uh, commentary writes, it does not mean necessarily that they would themselves be converted to Christ, but that as they had been accustomed to revile and oppose those who were true Christians, they would be constrained to come and render them the respect due to those who were sincerely endeavoring to serve their maker. So what Barnes in his commentary says, it is not necessarily that they would become believers like you know, the Philippian jailer. But the Lord says, you know, one day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So those who are opposing the gospel, one day they have to acknowledge, that's what the Lord says, you know, that one day they will have to acknowledge that this indeed is the gospel. This is indeed the truth. There is only one God, there is only one way, one day they will have to acknowledge, but obviously that day would be too late. Thirdly, the Lord also says, now I will make this happen so that they would know that I have loved you, that I have loved you. Now, remember, the Lord really loves us. If the world has roughed us up, if you have gone through different persecutions and testings and you know, uh, trials in this world, the Lord says, one day the truth will be revealed. Maybe you are in the position in which people have been accusing you, like the people of the synagogue of Satan, you know, the Jews, you know, the non-believers, or maybe people who call themselves Christians have been you know, ridiculing you for your faith. But the Lord says, I love you. One day, one day, they would know the truth. One day, they would know who is the right and who is the wrong. And on that day, they would definitely know that I have loved you. And today, we can go through life with that assurance, knowing that the world may say that you are worthless, you know, but Jesus died on the cross to prove it otherwise. The world may say you are ignorant, you know, you don't know anything, you know, 
you are you know, not a learned guy maybe or you are a dumb person to believe in all these things you know but jesus says your true knowledge is in knowing him the world may say you're wasting your life you know by following after jesus but jesus is getting you ready for the wedding feast you know look forward for that day because the lord says i have loved you i have loved you and fourthly the lord says i will keep you from the hour of temptation i will keep you from the hour of temptation okay remember when it speaks over here you know uh, i will keep you from the hour of temptation it does not mean that we won't go through trials you know and you know, that is not the you know, the meaning the meaning basically is you know i will keep you through the temptation okay the phrase keep you from in greek you know is this word ek ek and it can mean to keep you through or to preserve you in the trial okay so therefore those who believe that this promise you know uh, means that god will protect believers from succumbing to the trial yes testings will come but the lord promises us that he will protect us in the midst of all that as the psalmist so very clearly tells us isn't it yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil he doesn't say that he won't walk he says i will walk but the assurance is that he is there with us john piper writes and says god's promise to keep us from the hour of trial probably doesn't mean that we are taken out of the world but rather that god will keep us from the faith destroying effects of the hour of trial he will guard us he will protect our faith now we must you know, remember this understanding because often times you know some people will think about if god is there with us if we are trusting in god then he will keep us you know from the time of trial some people even understand this verse as the another you know, tribulation period you know that you know we won't go through any hard tribulations in life no no the emphasis is that god will be with us through that situation in second timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 you know paul writing says my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at antioch at iconium and at lystra which persecutions i endured yet from them all the lord rescued me the lord rescued me what does it mean when it says the lord rescued me he went through those okay he went through those but the lord gave him strength to endure through that and that's the promise that god gives to the church at philadelphia and that's the promise that god gives to us even today to say he loves us yes things are tough yes he knows that we are weak but he assures us that he is holding on to us and he is saying in that he is going to be with us through whatever will happen to us here on earth and then in verse 11 he gives us the exhortation to the church at philadelphia where he says behold i come quickly okay behold i come quickly and this expression is repeated four times you know in the book of revelation here in this verse then in you know chapter 22 we find in in verse 7 11 and 20 now when it says behold i come quickly okay it refers to his coming from god's perspective okay it is god's timetable and not our timetable okay we must be very clear about that when he says i come quickly 
Now, some people may say, hey, that was written 2000 years ago and why is that quickly? No, no, this is written from God's timetable because for God, a thousand years are just like a day or even less than a day. Okay. Also, this quick coming of the Lord refers to the imminency of his coming, meaning, you know, it can happen at any time. And he says, behold, I come quickly. You don't have to wait and say, if A and B happens, then the C, the coming will happen. No, it can happen at any time. That's the understanding of the, uh, the quickly. So, for us today, we don't have to sit and uh, 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 measure the signs that are taking place and trying to do some permutation combinations and say, so-and-so is the Antichrist, the temple is being rebuilt, when all those things click in, you know, then we know he is coming back again. No, no, no. You know, Christ can come back at any time to take us home to be with him. That's a rapture. So that's what the Lord is saying, behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Now, some people may ask this question, why has the Lord waited so long? Why has the Lord waited so long? Oftentimes, you also have that question, you know, wouldn't it have been great, you know, if as soon as we came to know the Lord, the Lord has took us home? Because finally, that's our final destination, isn't it? So why go through all the things that are going to happen here on earth? And wouldn't it have been great if as soon as we believe in Christ, we die or we are taken up, and eternity starts up. No, no. The Lord has reasons, okay? The Lord kept the giants in the land, in you know, the promised land. He did not remove all of them and say, okay, everything is clear now, you can go ahead. No, no. He kept them in order to test them, to check on our faith. And that's the reason why God has placed us here, to check on us, you know, to help us to grow in our walk with Him, to and you know, fulfill his purposes in our lives. It is also so that you know, the unbelievers have time to respond. That is where the heart of God comes in, isn't it? In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 we read, he wants that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is why he waited, he continues to wait. He doesn't want anyone to perish. You know? That is the heart of God, okay? So, when he says, behold, I come quickly, it can happen at any time, so be ready. That's what the scripture is saying. So, he says, hold fast to that which you have, so that no man can take your crown. Hold fast, okay? Knowing that I can, that the Lord is coming back at any time, he says, hold fast, you know? Don't give up. That is the assurance. Now, when it says, so that no one will take your crown, it is not a question of losing your salvation. It could be about losing your uh, rewards, you know. But what the Lord is really saying over here is, you know, look here, don't worry, you know, don't worry, okay. I'm coming soon, so don't give up, hold on, hold fast. That is the understanding. It's going to be a short time. Don't think and say it's going such a long time, would I really hold on? But the Lord says, no, it's going to happen very soon. Hold fast, hold fast. It is like when a person is on a racetrack and he's in a, a running in a, the race, in a, and it's the last final gap, and he's tied out, and then there are people cheering on and says, you know, you're almost there, you're almost there, hold on, hold on, you know, keep pushing. And that's the message that the Lord is giving to us. Don't ease up, don't ease up. Because the price is so close to being ours. Our best life is out there in eternity with Jesus. 
So keep looking unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. Never stop running to him. Yes, the race would be hard, but as we come to the end, it's going to be even harder still, you know. But remember, Jesus is waiting on the finish line. So keep running before that, you know. For Jesus, it was said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, you know. It was hard to go through the cross, but he knew what the end was going to be, salvation for the whole world. You know? So he continued faithfully. And Paul writing even at the end of his life when he says, I've kept the faith, finished the race. And then he says, you know, the crown has been kept for me. He looked forward for that. So that's the imagery that the Lord is using over here. I'm going to come quickly. So yes, things will get tough, you know, but don't give up. Hold on, hold on and the reward will be yours. His final word to the church says, He that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Okay, He shall go no more out. You know? He says, I will make him a pillar. Remember I mentioned earlier, Philadelphia was known for its earthquakes, and it suffered a major earthquake in you know, AD 17. Okay. Now, it's hard for a pillar to stand when the ground beneath it shakes, isn't it? But Jesus is promising to make his church into an immovable pillar. The world may knock you down in this life, but in the life to come, no one will have that power because Jesus will give every Christian a permanent place in the structure of God's kingdom. The Lord is saying your future is safe. Your future is safe. Yes, here it may be tottering, you know, but the Lord says, hold on to him that overcometh. I'm going to make sure that you will be a pillar. Now, when you're thinking about you know, a pillar, it is not like a supporting pillar. Okay, we must remember that. Okay, as Matthew Henry in his commentary writes, a monument, but it is to be a monument of the free and powerful grace of God, a monument that shall never be defaced or removed. In other words, no earthquake is going to shake you off. Nothing is going to happen to you that you're going to collapse. You know? When finally we be with the Lord forever, the Lord says, you will be a strong pillar. Be sure you will never lose out for all eternity. Secondly, it says it's going to be an unending future. An unending future. Never shall he go out of it. Remember, as I mentioned to you earlier, again, you know, when there was an earthquake, people ran out of the city, isn't it? You know? But here the Lord says, no, you will not go out because he is going to be safe. They are going to be eternally secure and stand forever in the presence of God. The eternal security of the believer is spoken of here. Okay? And then thirdly, he says, I will write on him the name of my God. In other words, we will be marked as God's people. We will be marked as God's people. During the tribulation period, you have the mark of the beast. But the Lord says in eternity, I will put my mark upon you to know that you belong to me. Remember, the shepherd and the sheep, the shepherd, the sheep normally has a marking to know that which sheep belongs to that shepherd. That is one part of it. The other side also, the shepherd knows the sheep. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They know one another. So this is the marking that the Lord says, I know who my sheep are. 
I know who belongs to me. I will write on him the name of my God. Fourthly, he says, and my own new name, and my own new name. In the Bible, whenever that speaks about a new name, it's a new status, okay? Like Jacob's name was changed to, you know, Israel or Saul and Paul, Abraham and Abraham, Sarai and Sarah. You know, it's a new status. So the Lord says, you know, I will give my own new name, okay? There are plenty of names of the Lord, you know, and the Lord says, my new name, okay? Maybe you do not know the new name of the Lord, no new status, new function, you know? But the Lord says, you know, I will give this name to you, ensuring that we are going to be united with him forever. He is the bridegroom, we are his bride, and we will be with him forever. And fifthly, he says, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you know, you will have a new citizenship, a permanent citizenship in his kingdom. This has come down from God out of heaven and will be on earth. The new heaven and the new earth, the earth will be recreated and made new into heaven. But it won't feel like a foreign country. We will be more fully home there than we are even here now. That's the assurance that God gives to us. Oftentimes we will have this question, would I get you know, bored in heaven? No, no, you would never get bored in heaven. You, know? you will feel like this is home. You know? This is your home. And that's the assurance. You know? When you know, a loved one goes to be with the Lord, we are saying they have gone home and we will go home. We will meet one another at home. We would be more fully home there. This is not our home. This is not our permanent dwelling place. We are not permanent citizens over here, but we are permanent citizens in the heaven that God has given to us, okay? And what privileges and rights we would, we, we would enjoy in heaven as his citizenship. That's why the Lord says, you know, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, hey, look here, it's going to be a short time, you know, and he's encouraging the church at Philadelphia, and he's encouraging each one of us even this evening to say, hold fast, don't give up, because this is what is promised for you. Look forward for that, and so live today. And finally, he says, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's not just for the church at Philadelphia. It is for each one of us this evening. A couple of important lessons from the church at Philadelphia. Number one, present feelings of dearest can never change future blessings of access. Okay. Yes, you're going through troubles, but the Lord says, don't be afraid. I've opened a door for you that no man can ever shut. Okay. When you're going through the tough times of life, remember, God has a better future for you. That this is not going to be a permanent thing. Yes, you may go through the storms of life, but remember the storms are not going to be forever. You are going to come out of the storms. Yes, you may be going through a dark tunnel. Don't worry. Permanent residence is not in the dark tunnel. The light is there at the end of the tunnel. 
that is the future blessings that God has promised for us. So look forward for that. Secondly, present feelings from actual animosity can never change future blessings of affirmed affection. Okay, the Lord told this church, hey, look at these individuals, these you know, uh, Judaizers who are emphasizing that they need to keep the law. They were troubling the Christians. You know, they were having a lot of hard feelings. You know. The Lord says, yes, things are going to be tough. You know. Even from your own family members, even from your people who call themselves as believers. You know. But he says, you know, be sure one day things are going to be changed now. And the Lord says, I have loved you now, you are loved now, you know, and one day this will be confirmed before everybody. So don't give up, don't give up. Thirdly, present feelings of serious danger can never change future blessings of certain delight, okay? Now, you may go through situations in which, you know, it is very, very trying. Dangers may seem very real. It could be about health, it could be our relationships, it could be mental, emotional, spiritual, well-being. Trials can feel so dangerous. But the Lord is saying over here, okay, now, yes, be sure you're enduring the present and be sure that God is going to protect you and he will keep you from the art of trial. Basically meaning that he's going to be with you in that time of tough testing. Fourthly, if this is true, then we need to seize the day. You know, every day that God gives to us, let's focus on opportunities instead of obstacles. Let's look for the open door rather than looking for the shut door. Okay, let's look for opportunities. You know, so that we can be used of God. We may look at the obstacle of saying, oh, I have no power. Or we may look at the obstacles of saying, look here, life is so tough. You know, this guy doesn't agree with me. This person is persecuting me. Don't look at the obstacles. Look at the opportunity that God has for us. Ask yourself this evening this question. Do you focus on the opportunities or do you focus on the obstacles? Is your life characterized by fear and negative thinking or is it characterized by faith and belief? And when God gives you an open door, do you squander the opportunity that God places before you? Seize the day, focus on the opportunities. We also need to seize the day by focusing on faithfulness instead of fear. Yes, there was trouble for the church at Philadelphia, but they were faithful in keeping his word, faithful in not denying his name, faithful in patiently enduring. They were not afraid, you know, they didn't have fear, but they seized the day and made sure that they were faithful. Yes, things around us may be very threatening, causing us to fear, but if you have to overcome that, be overcomers, seize the day to live the life that God has given to you, to be faithful in doing what God has asked you to do in the midst of all the opposition, be faithful. That is what is rewarded by God. Sixthly, seize the day by focusing on the eternal rather than the temporal. Don't focus on the earthquake, focus on the pillar. That's going to be the eternal. This is temporal. 
Don't focus on the suffering and the hardships that you're going through here on earth. That is very, very temporal for a moment. But focus on life with the Lord for all eternity. Seventhly, Jesus is powerful and in control. World conditions do not surprise him. Remember the church was living in the city, which was a very volatile city. Okay? As soon as an earthquake happened, they all had to rush out of their you know, houses. So some of them played safe and made huts in the plains itself. But the Lord says, look here, I know. I know all those things are there. But I'm the one who is in charge. We may look around at the world today. If one superpower suddenly says something, suddenly in one nation, economy collapses in a and we may be surprised, but world conditions does not surprise him. So let's focus on God. Let's focus on God. We may read the newspapers and look at world news, you know, and it may catch us by surprise. You know. Maybe like demonetization catches us by surprise. But the Lord is not surprised. There are so many things that surprises us in the world, but the Lord is not surprised. So let's not focus on what is happening. Let's focus on God who is in control of all that is happening. Eighthly, God genuinely wants the best for us. Do we really believe that? You know, do we really believe that? You know, the scripture tells us nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Lord constantly assures us in his word, isn't it? I will watch over you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will be with you. you know? Let's focus on all that. No. Let's not focus on the negative. Let's focus on the assurance that God has the best in store for us. Okay. Number nine, we are called to faithfully focus on him. The church at Philadelphia was commended because they were faithful in keeping the word, keeping the commandments. Okay. Remember Peter. When the Lord told him, you know, okay, you come. He wanted to walk on the water like Jesus did. He says, Lord, command me. The Lord commanded. He started walking on water. Great, isn't it? You know, focus was clear on the Lord. But the scripture says, as soon as he looked at the waves, focus shifted. And that is where he began to sink. You know? It is easy to walk on water if our focus is on the Lord. But how often we look at the waves, we look at the storms, you know, even though we started out by looking at the Lord, when things get a little too shaky, our focus shifts. Let's learn to focus on God. Number 10, be prepared. Be prepared. When the Lord says, I'm coming back soon, you know, it basically means suddenly, you know, you know, but let's make sure that we won't be taken by surprise. When Jesus spoke about the parable of the Ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. Why were they foolish? Because they were caught napping. You know? They were taken by surprise. They were not prepared. You know? Let's be prepared for his coming back again. The Lord says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming again of the Son of Man. 120 years, Noah preached, this is what is going to happen. It's going to rain. It's going to flood the whole earth. People did not believe. They went about their daily tasks. And the church has been given the responsibility to tell the world that Jesus is coming back and the church has been faithfully doing it. But how many people really believe that? Even as believers, do we really believe that he's coming back soon? Or 
do we think? Maybe not in my generation. Maybe whether he's really going to come back. The scripture says, be prepared for his coming because it is going to happen suddenly. And we need to be ready because the scripture says, you do not know the day of the hour of his coming. So we need to be prepared. But we don't have to be worried. We don't have to be worried. If we have put our trust in God, if we have been faithful in uh, uh, being obedient to him, as the scripture says, you know, uh, we purify ourselves even as he is pure when, when we are looking forward for his coming. If we are looking forward for his coming, we won't be worried, isn't it? You know? If we are looking forward, you know, then we are not caught unaware. So be ready, you know, be prepared, but don't be worried. How can we make sure that we are not worried by being prepared as if it's going to happen today. Finally, number 12, rest in the strong arms of the Lord. The Lord assures them, the church at Philadelphia, I will never desert you. And he tells us the same, nothing can separate us from God. He loves us too much to leave us. We can rest in the promises of God who promises us the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Remember, God will prevail in the end. In the meantime, during these uncertain times, the Lord tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's take that as a verse of assurance for us as we go through tough times here on earth to be assured that he loves us. So we are not going to give up. We are going to hold on because he is holding on to us. A couple of important application questions before we close this evening. Number one, when you go through very hard times, how are you tempted to view your relationship with Jesus? How is your relationship with him affected? Number two, have there been very difficult times in your life that you watched your relationship with Jesus increase or decrease in intimacy? Why do you think this happened? Number three, spend some time being honest with God about your life circumstances and how you're dealing with situations that are overwhelming or trying. Number four, what open doors has God put before you? Number five, have you made the most of the opportunities he has opened up for you or have you ignored them? How have you used your gifts and talents wisely for his glory? Number six, what is an area of your life in which you don't have full control of the outcome of things? And how do you trust God in those areas of life? Number seven, when you face trials, are you more likely to pray to ask God to remove those trials from your life or to give you the strength in the midst of those trials? Can you ask for both of these things at the same time? Number eight, it is important to know that Jesus opens and shuts the door. You don't know when the door will be shut and your chances will run out. So don't put the Lord to the test. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him while the door is still open. Number nine, are you living for the long term? Do you have an eternal perspective? It may appear that the enemies of God are victorious or prosperous in the short term. But in the end, remember, he will set everything right. Number 10, knowing that Jesus' return is imminent, 
what should you do? Number 11, what application can a modern day church make from this passage? And number 12, do you know someone in your sphere who is going through opposition or ridicule for their standing firm in their faith in Jesus Christ? And what are some actions you can do to demonstrate encouragement for them? This week, take time to contact them and to begin to implement these actions. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.